0: Hmm. Hear now God's holy, well-inspired, and inerrant word. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong in the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that we have your word. The God-breathed word. Your word for us, Lord, and we pray that it would do its good work in our lives to form us into the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work and draw us closer to you. Help us, Lord, to change, to put away sin, and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, almost everyone at some point in your life uh, has been in a competition in front of a crowd. You may have been on the playground in elementary school uh, or during a field day competition. It may have been in gym class or maybe you participated on the sports teams in your school uh, and you had a crowd around you uh, cheering you on, encouraging you and and yelling at you. And, and if you've had that experience, you know what an encouragement it can be to have people cheering for you encouraging you along the way. The crowds just say, come on, run faster, jump higher, whatever the case might be. Well, in the Christian life, we need motivation as well. We need encouragement. And that's what John is is giving his readers here today. But I, I want to point out that it's not the kind of encouragement that you get on the playground or at the stadium or in the gym which is just really saying try harder you know keep run faster you know that's not the kind of encouragement we need in the Christian life because that really points us in the wrong direction to just try harder now I'm not saying we shouldn't make effort because like Peter says in his letter make every effort to add to your faith and he lists off a number of characteristics so there is an effort to the Christian life, but we need to make sure our effort is placed in the right position, and the right object. I like to think of the encouragement we need more like coaching. You know, if you think of a sports team, for example, in football, uh, you you have, of course, a large crowd at some of the college football games that we enjoy, and they're cheering their team on, uh, making a lot of noise, trying to help their team out. But the real encouragement and, and motivation is going on in the sidelines by the coaches. If you know anything about uh, football, you know that the game is likely won or lost in the trenches, as they say, along the line of scrimmage with the big guys, you know, the defensive line and the offensive line who are right next to one another. And, and if one of those dominates the other, Then one team's going to win and one team's going to lose. It really is the big guys up front with all their muscles. And as the game goes on, you often see one side or the other get tired and weary. And they, you know, maybe they make bad plays. But what they have failed to do, and what the coaches are going to continue to tell them to do, is to use good technique. I don't know a whole lot about being a defensive lineman or offensive lineman. Uh, When I played football in high school, I played on a terrible team. Uh, I was uh, a backup, and and I was really skinny. And I usually, you know, was running for my life if I ever got a hold of the ball. But the big guys, you know, it looks like just man on man, you know, who's the stronger. But there is great technique, especially like, for example, playing the offensive line. If you follow these things, you know that they spend a lot of time on their footwork, where they place their feet and how they get their body's leverage in just the right position, and they practice that over and over again. It's not just about lifting weights and getting stronger. There's a whole technique to it. And what the coaches are telling them, especially when they get weary, they're encouraging them to not forget their technique, to keep their pad level low and, and uh, to use the right steps when they're coming off the ball and so forth and so on. Now, the same is true in running. You know, I ran track. Uh, I didn't run, actually. I just was a jumper. Uh, I ran as little as possible. But other people ran, and I was one of those guys going, hey, run faster, run faster, which was good. But our coaches would often point out to those runners that they needed to use good technique. They needed, there's a proper way to run. And I know how to run properly because I've seen coaches coaching other people how to do it. Uh, and, and I see people out running around, especially on the beach, and you see so much bad technique. You know, you're not supposed to move your head you know, around. But when you get tired, your technique tends to break down. You see people running without moving their arms. You're supposed to move your arms. But you see people running like this, and it's no good. It's bad technique. So when you're running, and if you're running a long distance, the, the wearier you get, the more your technique will break down. And you need to be reminded, use the good technique. You need to be be reminded of the truths that will help you perform better, that will help you get to the end, to win the race. Well, John here in this passage is breaking off from what he's saying to motivate his readers. I believe that's what this is all about here. And he's reminding them of some truths so that they can continue on in the race and and flourish even more in their race. Now if we go back a few verses, well, the first 11 verses of this chapter, we see here that John has been talking about particularly the two tests that we've already discussed in previous weeks. Uh, Within the book of John uh, he is just l- overlooking the whole thing. He's, he's talking about what is genuine Christianity. He's encouraging us along those lines. There were false teachers in the church to which John was writing. And they had all kinds of false beliefs that they were promoting. And, and John is concerned that these people know the truth, first of all, and live in the light of that truth, especially uh, obeying the commands being faithful to the Lord, and especially the command to love others. So we've looked at those first two tests. There's three tests that John gives us. First, the test of obedience. And you see that uh, in 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's the test of obedience. These false teachers weren't walking in obedience. And he also points out the need for love, the test of love. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now I don't know about you, but as I read particularly those sections of first John chapter two leading up to what we're studying today, in the first instance I think about God's commandments, and I and I think about how far short I fall in keeping those commandments. Whoever says he abides in him, whoever identifies with Christ ought to be like Christ, ought to live like Christ. And how often do we fall short of that? And then the the idea of love. It's easy to love some people, and then there are others in our lives who, you know, you have to make a bit more effort to do so. And if we go beyond even the people we know the people in our lives, to our our neighbors. The Good Samaritan talks about those around us who are suffering and how we often neglect those around us. And then even horrors, how much do we love God? We fall far short of that. We're apt to say, well, I don't know if I'm a believer when I look at my life and measure it by these standards. So John is mindful of that, I believe, when he, when he hits verse 12. He, he knows that he's challenging them to examine themselves, but he wants to encourage them, and so he reminds them of truth. And that's something we've been talking about in Sunday school. What motivates us to, to, to carry out the imperatives, to, to carry out the commands? What's going to motivate us to love our neighbor better? What's going to motivate us to be more circumspect in our obedience to the Lord? Well, it's not just somebody saying, try harder. You know, try harder, work harder at it. That's not what John's saying here. You know what John's saying? He's saying, remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember what Jesus has done for you. And let that motivate you to obey His commandments. Let that motivate you to love God. And your neighbor, and your brother. Now he addresses, you know, it's an interesting passage because I think he's uh, he's using some uh, grammatical devices. He's using the language to try to communicate something. He He says, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you. I write to you. I write to you. I write to you. So he's hammering home the fact, here's what I'm, I'm writing to you. Here's what I want to communicate to you. So listen to this. And notice who he's writing to. He first of all says, I'm writing to you little children. And then he says, I'm writing to you fathers. I'm writing to you young men. Now, he uses, first of all, the the term children is used 14 times in 1 John. He refers to the people to whom he's writing as children. And that refers to everybody in the church. So I don't think he he is singling out children, uh, old people, and everybody else in the middle. Specifically but what I'm what I think he's doing here is trying to say look church everybody whether you're young whether you're old or somewhere in between here's what I want you to think about here's what I want you to remember here's what I want to undergird your love and your obedience and he points to what they believe what they what they have experienced in Christ. Well, let's break that down. There are several things here that he has said. First of all, to the children. He begins, I'm writing to you, little children, this is verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, what a comforting, comforting statement to make after he said, if if you're not obedient, if you say you're abiding in him and you're, you're not obedient to the commandments then you're a liar and, and if you don't love your brother then you're a liar by saying you're a believer but little children your sins are forgiven remember that remember how much you've been forgiven and, and notice what it says here your sins are forgiven for his namesake on account of him And what he means by that is Christ has come to earth. The Father loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son. He came to earth and laid down his life that sins will be forgiven. If you put your trust in me, Christ said, your sins will be forgiven. If that is not true, Christ is dishonored. Christ is a liar. So if he says he's going to forgive our sins, he's going to forgive our sins. And we can bank on that. And that's what John is reminding you of. Our sins are forgiven not because we've worked hard to attain it, not because we've earned it in any way, not because we've deserved it, but because Christ has accomplished it. Christ is God. Christ never lies. Christ will deliver what he's promised. Now you see, when we remember that, how it motivates us to obedience and love. If Christ loved us so much that he would die for us so that we could be cleansed, so that our sins could be forgiven, then we should... Forgive and love others. If He's willing to serve us to that extreme, in that extreme manner of dying for us, suffering and dying for us in ways that we can't even fathom. Because yes, He He suffered physically, but He suffered in His soul. Because on the cross, He was abandoned by His Father, something He had never experienced in His life, nor did He deserve to experience it. But he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was, he was abandoned and forsaken like we should have been in our place. And if he's going to serve us in that way, well, what should we, how should we respond? How can I serve you? You know, Bob Dylan had a little Christian phase, the, the singer Bob Dylan. And he had a, he had a great Christian song uh, on one of his two Christian albums. He says, you have given everything to me what can I do for you it's a simple line but captures what I'm talking about he has given everything to us what, what can we do for him love so amazing love so divine demands my heart my soul my all so you see how John's trying to motivate us through the truth the indicatives The facts of what Christ has done push us out to carry out the commandments, to carry out love. And when you think about how much you've been loved by God and you didn't deserve it, well, as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. As we forgive our debtors, we should be more than willing to forgive those who have sinned against us, having been forgiven ourselves. And just like Simon the Pharisee, when he... Had Jesus over to eat, and the sinful woman came in and was weeping and wet jesus 's feet and and washed her his feet with her hair. You know Simon was outraged by this wicked woman coming in and doing this to jesus, and he said if if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her even touch him but of course, Jesus tells the little parable about Two debtors and and one was forgiven a small amount, one was forgiven a large amount. Which one will be more appreciative? Which one will love being forgiven more? Well it's the one who's been forgiven a lot. Well the woman in this episode had been forgiven a lot. Therefore she loved much. What about us? Do we are we really understanding how much we have been forgiven? I think part of the problem we sometimes struggle with, especially in our culture today, is we don't really understand sin or think about sin in the ways that we should think about sin. I was reading an article by Michael Horton uh, called The Greatest Challenge Facing the Church Isn't Religious Liberty, and it's on his Core Christianity website. Uh, A lot of good material there if you'd like to check it out. But he says... He says, in a highly therapeutic society, which we live in, everybody's always psychoanalyzing themselves and others, and we're always looking for help for our problems. In a highly therapeutic society, we say the words sin and salvation, but we mean, or people hear us saying, dysfunction and recovery. It's very hard in this culture to get people to take seriously the fact that a God outside of us is going to judge us one day and there is no hope unless we are dressed in the wedding garment of Christ's righteousness. We don't often think about God as the judge and we don't often think about it as our sin as a want of conformity unto and transgression of the law of God. We have not done the things that God has told us to do and we have done the things that God has commanded us not to do. It's it's an act of rebellion against God that we have committed, that we commit. Sometimes not even realizing it, other times fully knowing, fully understanding that we want to do what we want to do and we don't want to do what God wants us to do. People think religion is about inner empowerment for their own life projects. And many people today have a supporting role for God in their life movie. But the truth of the matter is, if you're a believer, you know, in this scene, you died. You died. Christ raised you up. And now you have a role to play in God's movie, in His story. That's how we need to think about ourselves and to be reminded when we're forgiven of our sins, we're forgiven of being rebellious enemies of God. And God has done something miraculous in turning us from His enemies into His children. So little children, your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. He goes on, I write to you children because you know the Father. And if we look at what he says to the fathers in verses 13 and 14, he says exactly, similar, uh, almost exactly the same thing. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And he repeats the same thing in verse 14. You know him who is from the beginning. You know the Father. You know him as from the beginning. You have That word know is, is more than just knowing facts about God. Because your sins have been forgiven, you now can come into his presence. Now you can have a relationship with God. You can know him personally and intimately. I know a lot of facts about people in history. I know facts about people living today throughout the world. But I don't know them personally. They don't know me. There's a difference between knowing about someone, knowing facts about someone and really knowing and having a relationship with someone. Well, the fact of the matter is, believer, you know God. You know God as your father. You have, have that father-child relationship with God. Now think about that. If, if God is your father, if God is your father... What should you do? Well, you should listen to your father and obey him. Not like we did when we were children, you know. Maybe we tried to get away with things, but that's the way we acted. But with God, our heavenly Father, who's a loving heavenly Father, we know that what He tells us to do is in our best interests. He's not out to. Spoil our fun. He's he's out to protect us, just like a earthly father should do. He's out to show us the right way to go. He's out for our best interests. And when he says to the fathers, you know him who is from the beginning, what what an encouragement that is. The one who is everlasting to everlasting, who doesn't change. Isn't that a reassurance that we know the God who doesn't change? If if you're a believer today, you have a relationship with a God who doesn't change. You change, the world changes, God never changes. What a reassuring comfort that is to know. That should inform us about how we live our lives, in our obedience, in our love for others. The Father has loved us so much, Let's, let's show that same family characteristic of love. And then finally he talks to the young men and he basically says the same thing. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So yes, we have been forgiven of our sins. We have a relationship with God, the Father, God, the one who is from the beginning and we have overcome the world. We have... We are conquerors in Christ. One of the last things that Jesus said to to his disciples was, I have overcome the world. And if we are united to him by faith, we have overcome the world. Sin no longer is our master. We've been freed from bondage to sin. We are forgiven and cleansed. We're no longer under the guilt of sin. We're no longer under the power of sin. We're no longer under bondage to sin. And one day we'll be free from the presence of sin. As we live in this world, sin is no longer our master and we have overcome the world, the evil one. He says in the second part, you are strong, young men, and and the word of God abides in you. It probably means you're strong because the word of God abides in you. You're strong. You have... You have heard the word, you've taken it on board, and it abides in you. And and it needs to continue to do so. You need to spend time in the word, that it abides in you. And your life is informed by the truth of God's word. So he's encouraging us. And when we say we've overcome the world, we're not going to succumb to the world... We think about how does that motivate us? Well, I'm not not all about this world. I'm not all about the evil one. God is my father, and I should obey him. How would God have me obey him? He would have me love himself and love others. So you see how John's motivating us. He's, He's cheering us on. He's coaching us. He's saying, look, remember these things about who you are in Christ. You know, as you look at your life, you think, well, I'm, I don't, I fall short in the obedience category. I fall short in my love for others. I want to grow in those things. Well, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember your forgiveness. Remember your relationship. And remember the victory that He has given us. And one day will be made complete. And until then, we press on. Press on in the right way, not just try harder, but to remember those things and let them motivate us to make every effort to add to our faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we do pray that that you would help us to be encouraged and reassured today. Everyone here who is a believer, Lord, we sometimes get weary in well doing. Sometimes we are racked with doubt and lack of assurance. Sometimes, Lord, it seems that the world, the flesh, and the devil have the upper hand. So I ask, Lord, that you would encourage each believer here today. Father, we pray for those who are lost here today. Lord, we pray that, that they might recognize their sinfulness... We pray, Lord, that they would be mindful that one day, a day they don't know when will be, that they will have to stand before you, the judge. Lord, we pray that that they wouldn't have to stand on their own merit, but that they would embrace Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he provides through his life, death, and resurrection so that they can stand in Christ, in his righteousness. Father, we pray that they would they would reach out in faith to you and that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, we thank you again for the encouragement you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.